Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. So we spoke to many finance ministers, but now let's get back to someone who we haven't spoken to yet because he's a newly minted economy minister and he is Roman Escolano, the new economy minister of Spain. Mr. Escolano, thank you for joining us. There's a lot that we want to talk about. We want to talk about trade, tariffs, reforms. But first of all, what was the biggest surprise in the job? So you've been in the job. You've always followed the economy. Is there something that surprised you? Well, I've been uh, as an economic minister of Spain for just one month. So I'm very brand new. That makes you a grizzled veteran. Well, it's still brand new in the position. But I'm a bit surprised by many things. I mean, the intensity of the European debate. I just joined a train which is in full speed. We have, as you know, prospects to find important agreements. I mean, the month of June, the debate in Europe is at full speed. But then I have in my own ministry, in the areas of responsibility, many interesting things like science, which is an important, and research, which is an important part of the policies of the government. And this is, of course, uh, extremely interesting. The discussion of the budget of Spain happened to uh, coincide exactly with the <laughs> first weeks of my uh, stance as a ministry. So the icy things, as you mentioned, and all of them coincide at the same time. So it's been a busy time, but a very important uh, uh, time for Spain okay. and for Europe. Do, do you find there's commonality in the G20? Are, are a lot of G20 ministers rallying against uh, people asking for the end of globalization? Well, I think that there is a broad consensus. Uh, if you ask me there's a full consensus, maybe I wouldn't go that far. But there's a broad consensus on many of the issues that have been discussed. First of all, protectionism. I think that there is a very, very wide consensus among our colleagues that we have to avoid escalation in the matters of protectionism. There is a perception that uh, the sun is shining in the global economy, but there are underlying vulnerabilities and we have to be aware. Uh, in many of the areas, we see normalization of monetary policies, including in Europe, of course, and we have to be prepared for that. Uh, we still have an economy which is full of debt. So uh, I would say that these uh, basic elements are part of the consensus that I find when discussing with my colleagues. May I say that there is also consensus uh, among my colleagues to see that the Spanish economy is doing well, if you permit me. That is also a part that, uh, well, frankly, I can tell that all my colleagues that's are That's where I wanted to go to. In this atrium, six, seven, eight years ago, Francine Lacroix and I noticed the panic, the sweat, the crisis. And what has been noted is Spain led the way to greater stability. As you look back five years, six years, seven years, what we would call the pixie dust. Yes. What was the pixie dust of Spain that allowed for you to recover so promptly? Well, I think there have been uh, uh, not just one reason, but uh, uh, few reasons. Uh, if you want to put a summary to what happened in Spain, I would say that the main uh, economic reforms that were undertaken in 2012-2013 are which are underpinning the current recovery. Particularly, we had a, a change in the law uh, regarding the budget, mm -hmm. and that, that created a path for fiscal consolidation, which has been extremely important. Then we have uh, a banking reform. 
uh, we have a very intense banking reform. The banking landscape has been completely transformed in Spain as opposed to the last uh, six years when you were mentioning. And finally, we have labor market reform. So you put the three together. That has called for this uh, uh, transformation. We talk about Europe valuations and we talk about Germany, the Netherlands. Maybe we talk about countries struggling far more than a successful Spain. Do you have in your head an optimal euro valuation? I would for not. Spain? Uh, have I you would, done that in the last I would four not weeks? comment on the uh, euro valuation. But next month you will, right? But I will tell you, <laughs> but I will tell you is that despite the uh, evaluation of a euro, uh, the Spanish export, particularly the Spanish export, are outperforming not only the uh, European or the euro area mm. average of export, but the world trade as such. So we are gaining actually weight. Spain is gaining ground. Uh, in the world trade. And this is extremely part of the recovery. Let me say, if you compare the Spanish economy today, when it was, was uh, six, seven years ago, there has been a reduction of eight points of GDP of construction. We used to be a country that had uh, this real estate uh, boom and then a lot of construction, a lot of jobs uh, linked with construction. This has disappeared, essentially. And now these eight, ten points are exports. So we have moved from this non-tradable economy right. to a tradable economy. And this is under Pinning the, the uh, presidential recovery. I mean, the, the Spanish budget bill was, was, is difficult. Will it get passed next week? Well, it, not actually this week. It is a bit more of time. But let me say that the main features of the Spanish budget are very important. First of all, reduction in deficit. We are, uh, really have an ambitious target for reduction in deficit. Uh, the consolidation of the growth. We will be growing more than the European average for the fourth year in a row. Among the largest European economies, Spain is the leading performer uh, this year will be, uh, as I mentioned, for the four year in a row. And then there is this social aspect, particularly regarding pensions. There have been some social groups that have been left behind mm -hmm. because of the uh, economic crisis. And we try to convey to that. So in political terms, I think there is no reason for the rest of the political groups not to support. We are still confident that this agreement will be found. Minister, we at Bloomberg Surveillance from London and from New York had yes. wonderful coverage of the crisis in Barcelona, the domestic politics of Spain. Give us an update on how the nation is coming together after the challenges that you saw in Barcelona. Well, the nation, as you mentioned, is coming together around the Constitution and around the constitutional order. Spain is a fully modern and advanced democracy around our very, uh, I would say, respected uh, constitution. Uh, the polls, the latest polls, including from the Catalan government itself, show that the support from uh, independence is diminishing. And it's diminishing quite fast, actually. Uh, we see that in terms of the economic situation and the business situation, the financial situation, uh, actually we see a clear recovery uh, in Catalonia after difficult months at the end of the year. And we are calling for the Catalan government to be formed to have a majority in parliament and to go back to normal relations with the national government. I think that this is an extremely important economic area in Spain. It's around 20% of the Spanish GDP. And we want normal relations to be reestablished as soon as possible with the new Catalan government. So uh, I, we want this to happen. And uh, uh, let me say that with the current existing data, we see that the business situation in Catalonia is recovering pretty much. Um, Minister, if we talk about European integration, so Mariano Rajoy likes euro bonds, he likes a European budget, and a finance minister. What will Germany likely say or you know, push, push through and what should the priorities be? Our priorities is essentially the completion of the missing parts of the uh, economic and monetary union. We have made a tremendous advance in the last four years, probably more than people actually realize. We have a single supervisory system, we have a single bank resolution system, but there's still some missing parts. 
namely we need a, a common uh, deposit guarantee scheme. I mean, the Americans have this for uh, 70, 80 years, but we lack. We still have national systems. We need a backstop for the uh, resolution system to really function in times of uh, stress. These are missing parts. So these are our priorities. We think that uh, uh, um, the Spanish government, and we will publish next week a, a paper on that, we need a kind of fiscal stabilization mechanism that we think will complement the monetary policy, particularly in times of uh, shocks and times of but crisis. Will we get it in our lifetime? Will we even get a banking union in <laughs> our cynical lifetime? cynical of you. It must be at the end of the IMF meetings. I Francine, am, cynical. As you may uh, see, I'm a Europhile. We are used to have step-by-step -step process. We used to have difficulties. We believe to have a quarreling between ourselves, arguing between ourselves. At the end of the day, sometimes at the very latest moment, agreements are found. This is the typical European way. So in this sense, I think that uh, we are optimistic. We are clearly pushing for a European integration. You will find in Spain one of the countries which is pushing more for European integration. Why? Because our population is clearly in favor of the uh, more European integration. And we think that we benefit from this in the historical sense. This may be off your remit, but I'm going to take a risk here because you've only been doing this for one month. There's going to be a new ECB president here in a year and a half or so. And there's a raging debate that we observe in London and New York about, well, should it be German, should it be this, or should it be that? What does Spain feel about the leadership of the ECB and how Spain could fit into that equation? What I will tell you is that uh, as of uh, June, July, the ECB will have a brand new vice president from Spain, which is my predecessor, which is an extremely talented and respected economist, and who will make an impact. Uh, he will leave his mark in the working of the ECB. So he'll be Apart in that position and be able to move right up. Well, he, will, he will leave his mark and his talents <laughs> at the service of the works of the ECB. Apart from that, if you expect me to comment, I will not at this stage. <laughs> Minister, on Bankia, it has to be fully privatized by 2019. Will that, will that deadline stick? Uh, Bankia will be fully privatized. We don't think that there is any role for the government to be in the, involved in banking. And that's a clear the government policy. Second, we want to be sure that the uh, money and the support that was given by the taxpayers to the uh, rescue, let's say, of the depositors of the banks are uh, to the maximum extent possible recovered. So these are the two pillars of our policy. In the framework of these two pillars, we will advance. But uh, mind that uh, Bankia will be privatized because we do not see any role of public uh, uh, owned banks. Minister, thank you so much for joining it's us here for our IMF World Bank special. That was the Spanish economy minister. He is Roman Escola. David Lipton is the American representative. He has four titles here, but usually to Madame Lacard, he's the important number two. Many of you will know John Lipsky uh, of another time and place serving in these same important uh, duties. Dr. Lipton, wonderful to see you again. What do you do every day for Madame Lagarde? What's the real job of the first deputy director? Uh, to manage the staff and uh, the work of the staff and make sure that everybody is uh, uh, doing what they've got to be doing. Uh, thinking about the policy, the strategy, and the crisis situations we Give face. Give us a stereotype of one PhD making the green book, the blue book, the fiscal book. Give us an example of who that PhD is that's giving you your brain power. You know, we've got people from all around the world. They're the very well-educated PhD economists. But what separates them from others is we are clinical economics. 
Uh, clinical economists, that? meaning you have to practice what you preach. It has to not just work in theory, it has to work in practice. And these are people who've been doing this around the world in mm -hmm. real world situations, dealing with the actual problems and the leaders who have to bring about the changes. The zeitgeist <clears throat> of the 1950s and 1960s IMF was maybe over a week, over a quarter, maybe out six months. The zeitgeist now is one or two days. We what do to, you see yeah. here within these spring meetings? Well, we have to be agile. What everyone is saying this week, one way or another, is very simple. Things are good, but they're getting risky. And our message, of course, is in that kind of setting, while things are still good, it's time to try to prolong this recovery in ways that will be uh, sustainable and prepare for those risks, try to lessen the risks and be in a, a better position to deal with them if they materialize. You have a beautiful social media effort. I can tell you that in the bars, now maybe Arsenal football with the British contingent today will be different, but in the bars of the IMF, in cocktails, there is one video people are looking at, and it's the debt video yeah. of all the nations with improving debt structure, and there's one nation with a red bar, and it's the United States of America. Is the United States of America saving for a rainy day? Well, look, there are debt issues all around the world. The key number you're referring to is $164 trillion. That's a big number. That's more than twice global GDP. So there are a range of countries around the world that will not have the buffers, will not have the space and room to maneuver if something goes wrong. And so they should be doing something about that, trying to uh, rebuild space. The United States is in that category. It's important, and we've been saying this for years, that the U.S. soon reduces the budget deficit and tries to get the debt to GDP ratio to come down because you never know what will happen tomorrow. The arch theory for all Americans and frankly for many in the advanced economy is growth will solve everything. Within your forecast in the blue book, your world economic outlook, thank you Maurice Absfeld, can you yank it over to the brown book, the fiscal space, mm -hmm. and say the growth will be there for every unique story, including the United States? Well, we would like to see people countries, all of our member countries, try to take steps to improve growth in the medium term because this is a cycle and you have to look over the crest of the right. hill and see what's going to come. And we believe that actually potential growth will be somewhat lower in the future uh, than it's been in the past. So there will have to be affirmative steps through infrastructure and structural reforms to uh, improve uh, the growth prospects. But I would say that there are, there, are, there are new wild cards on the horizon. I Give think, us an example. Well, the, 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 the three subjects, non-traditional subjects in a sense, that are on everyone's minds this week are the three T's, trade, technology, and trust. Trade is a semi-traditional mm -hmm. subject because it, it used to be a big deal, but everyone's been in agreement for years right. that there should be liberal trade. We need to, on trade, we need to pivot from where we are to countries that have uh, gain from globalization and know their future is linked to globalization, but are now big enough to matter. They need to be thinking about uh, opening up their own economies, and at the same time, the United States right. needs to be letting go of uh, unilateral pressures to achieve its goals. Oh, here, at the, but, here at these meetings, but, people are really now talking about all together trying to find ways to shift to more market access, more uh, competition, 
countries are now strong enough to open themselves up to competition, they will all gain. But the template, of, this is so important, <clears throat> David, the template here is a multilateral effort in this idea of trust right. buttressed up against an America with a president who is to be kind bilateral, maybe unilateral, or maybe my way or the highway. Right. How do you draw the present administration into a more successful trust relationship yeah, I think the, in our political economics? I think economics. the breakdown in trust is very, is very broad in the United States, in Europe, in many places. Trust is um, between uh, international partners, trust in national institutions is uh, diminished, and I think that's a problem. The way it has to work is that people cooperate and show that cooperation leads to gains, <clears throat> and then you start to rebuild a sense that there is something right. to be achieved together. I was talking to Jason Furman about the wonderful economist Robert Barrow and the trust over time. Are we destroying, within your study of trust at the IMF, I did a panel on this, and uh, Dr. Lipton will do a panel on this as well, do large deficits, do burgeoning debt over the long term, they must destroy institutional and societal yeah. trust. Look, I think the globalization and the dislocation, the, the financial crisis, technology, all of those things have led to a, an erosion of trust. People don't believe that institutions, the government has taken care of them. Mm -hmm. And so there's globalization, uh, you know, we've been saying this for years, globalization has to be managed in a way that it is going to be durable. You have to deal with the dislocations that come from globalization. And I think, as you're saying, you have to make sure that you maintain stability because the financial crisis was the biggest destroyer of trust. We've not really, uh, we've recovered in the sense that people trust financial institutions because we did a, a huge reform to make banks safe again. But more broadly, it's very important to maintain uh, stability of public finances in order to that people will trust in their governments. Within this is China and within this is a trade. This has been a wonderful discussion centered on the United States but there are changes in the Pacific Rim, there are changes in China and maybe the dialogue into May is about TPP. The president swings back and forth. Who knows where the president will be on TPP. Review the IMF stance on the efficacy, the benefits that all can see from TPP, even a China potentially excluded from yeah. it. I mean, at the root is the proposition that we still can gain from more interconnectedness and that that's key to the future of the, of the Asia Pacific region. Um, and I think that, that there's, there's certainly having high standard trade agreements where there can be a deepening of uh, uh, links and countries can open themselves up to competition. Mm. Everyone gains from competition. It's a positive sum game. Is important. I, I, it's been a shame that the United States hasn't found yet found a way to participate in that because the United States could be a real driver mm. of growth. David Lipton, thank you for this spirited conversation today, of course, with the International Monetary Fund.
On behalf of Tom and I, I'm Nahu's spokesman. We say good morning to you for the second day of coverage from the World Bank IMF meetings here in Washington, D.C. An interview that we've both been looking forward to yes. all week is speaking to the EU Commissioner for Monetary and Fiscal Affairs. He is Mr. Pierre Moscovici and joins us now. Commissioner, when you look at what Europe wants, a lot of countries want more integration. Others want to maybe tone down the integration. What are the Germans at? Do, do, are they getting a little bit more cold feet than maybe six months ago on banking union, capital markets union, and getting closer together? Well, it took time after the elections for uh, the German government to be formed. Uh, it has been done recently. The country is maybe more divided than it used to be. It has its own cultural stability. Uh, the political balance is quite difficult to strike. And this can explain why, I wouldn't say they're reluctant, but they are careful. Uh, but I think that they need to understand that the situation in Europe is as well positive for the economy and complex politically, and that they need to take their responsibility as economic leaders and to show that, well, their tradition of risk reduction must be respected, but that they also need to show solidarity. And that means also taking Mr. Macron's and the Commission's hand in order to reinforce the uh, economic and monetary union to have a eurozone which is stronger for all its members and also to recreate the tools to converge right. for our economies, to reduce inequalities. Um, Commissioner, can, can any good come of the, of the trade war, uh, a possible trade war between the US and China? And I'm not talking about economically, but we've heard in the last 18 months, 24 months, that European countries lacked commonality. Now they have something to try and avoid together. Well. You cannot define uh, yourself against another one, uh, but we must not be divided by that. Uh, there is no French, German, Italian uh, interest in that. As far as trade is concerned, we are all together. The Commission is responsible for negotiating on trade. Uh, my colleague Malmström uh, is in charge of that. I will meet Wilbur Ross in a few minutes. I met yesterday Steven Mnuchin. Uh, I saw people in the White House, and I think that we must uh, get down on the tone on that. A trade war is as every war. It's bad. Uh, nothing, nobody wins. It's lose-lose. And we need to fight protectionism. Here we are in the temple of multilateralism. We'll be in a G20 meeting in a few seconds. And there uh, we must say protectionism is not a solution. It is a problem. And we must do that all together. But that's not enough uh, for Europe. For Europe, we really need to integrate more where it's necessary, not everywhere. I'm not asking for a federal Europe, but I'm saying uh, there are items uh, such as migration, trade that you mentioned, uh, uh, monetary union, uh, on which we must make decisive progress in order to have more investment, to have a, a, a better and stronger growth for the future. Secretary Mnuchin is also giving you the gift of a trillion dollar deficit, and it seems like chronic trillion dollar American deficits. How does that affect Europe? You're in a recovery, and yet the story of this IMF is a U.S. that has a tone of fiscal irresponsibility. How does that affect Europe? Well, there are short-term effects, macroeconomically, long-term effects that we cannot really foresee, and there are political effects. For the short-term effects, they are positive, since uh, the American growth is uh, picking up. Uh, and with a, a booming American uh, economy, it's good for the rest of the world because we are uh, partners, allies, we uh, exchange together. There is no trade war for the time being. Uh, so that's good. For the medium term, 
as always, when you've got a high debt and a high deficit, you need to watch that carefully uh, to avoid uh, imbalances. Uh, and this is not only for Europe, this is worldwide. Politically, uh, our situation is not the same. Uh, we have a high debt. We don't have the privilege of having the world currency, which is the dollar. Uh, so we must still be careful about uh, our public and private debt. And as right. Madame Lagarde said, uh, uh, debt is still the problem for the future. The, the two main risks for growth, which is now very solid all over the world, are on the one hand protectionism mm -hmm. and trade tensions, mm -hmm. and on the other hand, uh, debt. And our culture in Europe must not change. We must reduce right. debts because without, Commissioner, without that, it, we, we, we cannot finance our public services. Is it easier to actually sell austerity to the Europeans than it is to the US? As a political, you were a politician before. Do, do we talk about it differently? And this was a point, Tom, that you were making about, yesterday about austerity. I, 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 was, I'm, I'm, I was not a politician. I'm, I'm still a political appointee. Uh, being a commissioner is uh, being a, a political uh, appointee. Uh, and so I, I think about that politically. I, I never was in favor of austerity. Austerity is when uh, you become poor and you cannot develop public services, you cannot invest. You need to be serious, and that's somehow different. Uh, that means that you need to reduce your debt, you need to reduce your deficits. Our rules are there for that. But you can also apply these rules with flexibility, and that's what we've done. We, we never punished or, 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 or made constraints to one of our member states, neither Portugal, neither Spain, neither Italy, neither France. And this was positive because at the same time they reduced their debt. The average uh, uh, deficit per year is under 1% in Europe, uh, and that is uh, getting down. And we did that without austerity. Uh, that's the same case with Greece. I hope that now, in a, in a few moments, we will have Greece out of its program. Uh, because, uh, uh, well, being serious must not damage growth. And, and that's, that balance yeah. uh, is the one we are you, looking for. You mentioned here at the IMF, in this beautiful atrium, the temple of multilateralism. Great. Four blocks down is the temple of my way or the highway. How does Europe adapt to President Trump in his claim of a bilateral discussion, which everyone agrees is my way or the highway, do you wait out the President of the United States or do you sense a structural change in American negotiations with its allies? That's the least we can say. Uh, the change with President Trump and his team is huge. Uh, and well, well, the words I pronounce, multilateralism, uh, refusal of protectionism, uh, fighting climate change, it, it's not really in the vocabulary and in the culture of this administration. Uh, so, uh, we know that we need to, to, to defend our own values. Uh, I, I don't mean against Trump. Uh, okay. tr Europe cannot be built against Trump, but for our own sake. But at the same time, we have to negotiate, we have to discuss with the administration. Right. Here I meet but everybody, and, and we are trying to establish with them the best possible uh, discussion uh, climate. Okay. But longer term, could this actually hurt growth? And I'm not talking about U.S. growth, I'm talking about U.S. growth and world growth and therefore European growth. I, I said there is short-term effect, which is positive, and, and medium-term effects uh, have to be uh, certainly calibrated. Uh, uh, first, we need to uh, avoid the fact that at one moment uh, the economy seems to be overheated. Uh, and, and the second thing is protectionism uh, uh, is really a pain for the economy for various reasons. Uh, for itself, but also for the climate, mm -hmm. uh, for what uh, the message it sends mm -hmm. to markets who don't like this, for the risk Will of we volatility. Will we have a trade war? No, I, I'm, I'm quite sure. 
here in Washington, I told you that we are different from the Trump administration by all means. But at the same time, we respect them. They are legitimate here. They've been elected and they run the country. And so uh, I think the messages we are uh, trying to define together, and again, I met a few of them, uh, are that uh, we need to avoid that trade war, that finally we need to refuse protectionism, uh, that we need to defend free trade, even an organized free trade. Uh, we need certainly to resolve some problems. Uh, the overcapacities so, in steel in China are a problem, uh, but we need to resolve them together. Okay, but in 20 seconds, so you're saying those U.S. officials told you that actually they were ready to ratchet down the rhetoric? I, w I wouldn't say that. I'm not a spokesman, but I feel that the climate <clears throat> is a climate of exchange of views, not of imposing views, neither of uh, uh, confronting views. And uh, th that's true dialogue, dialogue with, between different people mm -hmm. thinking differently that we will find a way. Pierre Moscovici, thank you so much. Yes, we are here. It's day two of our coverage, and I am delighted to be joined by the French finance minister. He is Mr. Bruno Le Maire, and he joins us now to talk about uh, reforms, tariffs, trade. Minister, thank you for giving a little bit of your time to Bloomberg. How worried are you that trade tensions escalate into trade war? I'm worried because I think that there is a risk of having a trade war between uh, the United States and uh, China, between the United States and the rest of the world. And I really think that we should do our best to avoid that uh, trade war, which would lead to uh, less growth, less uh, employment and more geopolitical difficulties. But in, in the more immediate term, it's about also convincing the U.S. not to impose tariffs on steel. For the moment, uh, we're exempt, course. but for a of short course. time. We, we cannot accept France and Europe to be hit by uh, new tariffs coming from the United States. And what we really want is a full and permanent exemptions for the EU of the new American tariffs. We are allies. And we cannot understand that kind of policy which might jeopardize growth and private companies either in France or in other European states. So we are waiting, I want to be very clear on that, we are waiting for a full and permanent exemptions from the uh, American tariffs on uh, Europe. Do you think that you will get some kind of indication that the U.S. will be willing to grant you that today? I hope so. I've been very clear with uh, Stephen Minuchin. Uh, we have a very good relationship and uh, I think that uh, it allows us to have very clear and very frank discussions on that question of trade. I will have also important meetings on Monday in Washington during the state visit of uh, Emmanuel Macron to the United States with uh, Wilbur Ross and uh, with uh, Mr. Lighthizer. And I hope that they will understand that we are allies. The United States and France, the United States and European countries are allies. And we cannot understand that between allies there are such threats coming from new tariffs on steel and aluminium. Will that be the main message also from President Macron when he comes to Washington next week or will there be also talk about you know, digital technology? So there will be other topics of course but that question of uh, trade will be uh, really one of the important questions that will be raised during the state visit of Emmanuel Macron to the United States and I I want to seize the opportunity of those G20 and G7 meetings here in Washington 
to explain the political position of France and of all European countries. We are allies. We want that full and permanent exemption. And we do not want to run the risk of having decisions coming from one of our closest allies, I mean the United States, jeopardizing growth and the economic situation in France. How much of the talks at the G20 and the G7 level was on China, on what China will do next and what Europe can do to bring China closer to them? We, we have to engage China and we want uh, China to uh, abide by their international commitments. We want China to help us to build a new multilateral approach as far as trade is concerned. But the, the right solution is not to engage into uh, any kind of uh, war against China. The right solution is to engage China, to have China on board, trying to uh, improve the multilateral institutions related to trade. When you are looking at the current situation, we all know that there is a full weakening of all multilateral institutions related to trade. We want to build a new multilateral approach and a new multilateral order as far as trade and economy is concerned. And we want China to be on board with us. Minister, uh, domestically, uh, the French president, yourself, are pushing for a lot of reforms. But there are strikes almost every week. Does that mean that they're at risk, or will you double down? And does you ha even have more resolve to actually push these reforms through? We will keep the path of reforms. We will keep the pace of reforms. Because with Emmanuel Macron, we strongly believe that we need those reforms to improve the competitiveness of French uh, companies, to improve the attractiveness of France, and at the end of the game, to create more jobs for French people. So we have already decided last year to introduce a total overhaul of the French tax system. We have been able to modernize the labor market in France. And this year, we will adopt a new law on competitiveness for French companies, especially for French SMEs, which will allow us to have more competitiveness within French companies. Because the key issue is, first of all, to improve the level of growth and the creation of jobs in France, but also to restore the credibility of the French political power. But the French want to be reformed? Or, or are you concerned that because there is, of those strikes... There is a large majority of French people so why that so many want strikes? those reforms. Because we are in a democracy. And in a democracy, there are people that are against reforms. So there are strikes. Uh, this is something normal, and we have to live with that. But at the end of the game, we will keep the reforms, we will adopt the laws, and we will improve the situation of the French people. And for the moment, there's no talk of retracting some of them or watering down the reforms. It is really not the right solution. It's what has been done during the last three decades, I would say. Uh, we wanted to do something. There were strikes. and. The French governments decided to withdraw their reforms. We won't do that. We will stand firm and we will put those reforms to the end 
for the sake of improving the situation of French people. We are not doing reforms for the sake of doing reforms and being able to say, well, there are a lot of reforms in France. That's not the point. The point is to improve the economic situation of France and the political credibility of our nation. Uh, Minister, one final question. Do you worry about the high level of the euro? And then we'll let you go because a lot of these people are waiting to, yes. to go into your photo opportunity for the G20. But are you worried about euro? No, I'm not uh, worried about the level of the euro because I think that it reflects the growth and the economic recovery in uh, Europe. So that's not a point of uh, concern for us. My point of concern is really linked to the situation on trade. Okay, Minister, thank you so much for joining thank us. You. Deputy Prime Minister Shimshak, thank you for joining us today on Bloomberg. There were a couple of days ago a huge red Bloomberg flash saying Turkey was calling snap elections. Is that good for investors or is that bad for investors? It's actually good news. Market reactions show that. The reason is that essentially saves investors from getting worried for 18 months. Normally, elections were scheduled for November 2019. So that brings it forward. And that eases, essentially, uncertainty, reduces it. Plus, you know, snap elections means you don't have a prolonged campaign period. Only two months. Election economics is highly likely to be very limited. Noise, usually associated with elections, likely be subsided. So, in that sense, I think it's good news for investors. It will provide clarity, get a fresh mandate, and hopefully start with reforms. What is the question you got the most here at the IMF? Is it on the snap elections or is it on the falling lira? Well, yesterday I had meetings with investors. Uh, you know, a number of U.S. investment banks hosted a number of events. So I was able to interact with almost 100 investors. I think the key question in their mind is, what sort of policy framework post-election? Will Turkey move to a more of an orthodox monetary policy? Will Turkey jumpstart second, third generation reforms to avoid you know, the middle income trap? Things like that. Those were the key questions. There was less about the outcome of the elections. It seems like everybody seemed to be banking on a new term. You had a storied career at Merrill Lynch, and then you've had your public service to your nation of of Turkey, and part of that has been a constant depreciation of the Turkish lira for any set of reasons. There hasn't been a lot of central bank action on the lira yet. Are we at a tipping point where if there is further lira erosion, depreciation, devaluation, that you and Mr. Erdogan have to act? Well, for 10 years, lira appreciated in nominal terms. Last few years, which has been traumatic for right. Turkey because of Agreed. geopolitics and all other you know, domestic and external shocks, lira has been weak. Some support for lira would help. Uh, you know, I can't make a call on monetary policy because central bank is independent. Mm -hmm. However, having said that, clearly uh, some support would help. Within that and within the idea that some support would help is do you do it yourself or do you need institutional allies to help Turkey to stabilize the lira or even strengthen it? Can you go by, can you go to alone? Well, it's going to be a combination of factors. 
First of all, I think uh, elections and post-election, you know, reviving reform program, mm. you know, moving to a more a simplified monetary policy framework. Uh, I think that would provide a strong message. The worst is likely behind Turkey in the sense that, you know, tourism is recovering very strongly. Economy has done very well last year. Momentum is still reasonably strong. It's moderating. We should ease pressure both on inflation and on current account deficit. So fundamentally, we still have a strong fiscal position. We have low debt to GDP and mm -hmm. the banking sector is still in reasonably good health. The two rough spots in the Turkish economy, current account deficit and inflation, I think with some moderation in credit growth and some reform effort, we could kind of like regain market confidence mm -hmm. and put behind you know, these mm -hmm. difficult episodes. And I want to get on Turkish credit in a second, but when you look at the devaluation of the lira, 10% in March, why has the central bank not acted? Well, Central Bank has recently indicated that they will act. I think it is important that we bring inflation back on a lasting basis to a single digit. Now, this is very critical. The only way Turkey was able to deliver very strong growth, and by the way, it's like 5.8% for 15 years, it was on the back of disinflation, sound macroeconomic policies, structural reforms. Now we cannot afford to let that slip. But is, is the central bank truly independent in Turkey? Well, legally, there's nothing holding them back. They get appointed for five years. They cannot be removed. Their only mandate is price stability, and in that sense, is independent. But there has been, there has been, you know, strong debate about where the monetary policy stance should be. Now, whether or not that has been effective, obviously that's open to question. But the central bank meets on Wednesday. Do you think on Wednesday they will take decisions independently of, of political influence? I Again, central bank is independent and they can act independently. So it all boils down to the monetary policy committee. I'm saying this, it, legally it is so and practically it is so. There has been occasions, mm -hmm. there has been cases where central bank did respond despite, despite an intense debate where monetary policy should be. Minister, I want to ask you about the sprawl of the Levant in the Middle East and of Turkey that we see right now. Your remit is financial. Your claim is what you did for the Turkish economy. I think of Robert Kaplan's book, The Return of Marco Polo, that's just out, that's talking of a new Eurasia. How does your Turkey, and with the domestic tumult of Turkey, how does it fit into the region in three years or five years? Well, first of all, we, Turkey right now is the world's largest refugee hosting country. We host a combined Iraqi Syrians, about four million. Are you getting enough support from the West on that? You've had the courage we to We appreciate take European support, even though it's been very slow and limited. Turkey has spent close to $34 billion over the past six, seven years on refugees. We can afford it, and we're doing it simply because we feel that we have to do it, uh, you know, because they have no choice. They're running for their lives. Mm -hmm. So my point is, Turkey is looking forward to a somewhat more stable, more democratic, more peaceful region. Why? And we want to help reconstruction. We want to help. I'm not talking about 
business here, mm. purely helping. But we need to have a lull in violence. The good news is the, the, the barbaric ISIS has been dismantled. Now that's very important, very important. We, it's time now to stabilize Syria. Iraq has gone a long way in terms of stabilization, mm -hmm. even though it's not fully dead. Then we can talk about reconstruction. Your exceptionally important voice, your childhood in southeastern Turkey, with all the different tensions within Turkey, do you see out of the present chaos, the, the political, the domestic damage that's been done, do you see a new Turkey where there can be a more domestic peace from the west of Turkey to the east? Well, the current Turkey, unfortunately, is a product of a number of traumas that we have experienced. It is very unusual to have a cultish religious network try to grab the power. It's an alien concept. I mean, it's very hard for our and friends and allies to understand, but it's largely behind us. At some point, Turkey was subject to intense terror attacks, 30 major terrorist attacks between mid-2015 end of 2016. And that was because we had 911, we have 911 kilometers of border with Syria. And Syria is no longer a functioning state. Turkey now has a good grasp. We build a wall, we're there, so it's under control. So what I'm trying to say is that most likely the war is behind us. Rebuilding new Turkey will require going back to strengthening rule of law, enhancing standards of democracy, continue to boost fundamental rights and freedoms for everybody. Now, I don't believe that there is less of a commitment to this. What is happening right now, the, the threat level, the perceived threat and the real threat is there, and that's why Turkey is responding the way it has responded. Deputy Prime Minister, I want to go back to the economy and back to the lira. Is there anywhere to support the lira that the central bank could do without raising interest rates? Well, I think we're beyond talking, uh, you know, uh, clearly at some point we have to convince the markets that we are able to bring inflation down that we are able to contain current account deficit. The world around us is changing. I mean, right now global growth is there and maybe sustained for a little, you know, for a couple of years. But this is the time when we address underlying vulnerabilities. Now, the bright spots are we have a strong fiscal position, we have a healthy banking system. The real economy is doing well, but the rough spots needs attention. And does that mean that, that uh, something on Wednesday would be a strong message to the investor I know community? What, is well, that what you're I know what you're trying to, to get me. me to say, but you know, it wouldn't be appropriate for me to really comment on what central bank will or will not do on Wednesday. It wouldn't be appropriate. No, no, of course, of course. Deputy Prime Minister, thank you so much for joining us. It's a great pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.